So we know that the Bible is made up of lots of stories, but together they make one story, God's story. And we know that uh, the Bible contains lots of different kinds of literature, lots of genres of literature. There is history, and there's poetry, and there's parable, and there's ancient biography, and there are letters, all kinds of different literature. Uh, Well, this month, we're looking at the overarching narrative of the Bible, the big picture stuff. Uh, Last week, we looked at creation, how God created everything from nothing, and how he brought order and beauty out of disorder and darkness. And then his final act of creation was to make human beings in his image to care for creation on his behalf. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 present to us God's creation, brimming with hope and potential. But then by chapter 3, we see that Adam and Eve are hiding from God. Uh, Something has gone wrong. And Genesis chapter 3 tells us all that has gone wrong with the world. If you were here last week, you'll remember that the first part of Genesis is written in the style of a historic parable. A parable is true. It expresses truth. But it doesn't have to be literally true. Uh, Jesus taught in parables all the time. Um, Take the parable of the Good Samaritan, for example. Jesus wasn't recounting something that he'd read in the Jerusalem Gazette. Uh, The story wasn't literally true, but it conveyed an important truth. Namely, that we should regard even our enemies as our neighbors, people that we should love. So a parable can be true without being literally true, and it shouldn't surprise us that we find parabolic literature elsewhere in the Bible. And chapter 3 begins with the appearance of a talking serpent who is the representation of evil. And looking at this through the lens of the New Testament, I think we want to say that uh, the serpent is the a representation of Satan. And he begins by trying to cast God as a spoil sport. He says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? In other words, what God is asking is unreasonable. It's impossible. It's ridiculous. It's too restrictive. What, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? That's outrageous. How could a God ask that of you? The devil still uses the same tactics today. I'm convinced that many people keep Christianity at arm's length because they see it as a long list of rules which will inhibit them from living life to the full. Nothing could be further from the truth, but that is the lie that the devil wants us to believe. Anyway, Eve sets the serpent straight. She says, we may eat from any of the trees in the garden, But God did say, you must not eat of the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, or you will die. The permission to eat from any of the trees in the garden far outweighs the one prohibition not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's clear that God gives that one prohibition to protect them. If they eat from that particular tree, they will die. This situation is like parents 
providing a really healthy, wholesome, balanced diet for their child, full of all kinds of treats as well. And then someone trying to convince that child that they're hard done by because they can't eat the poisonous berries from the bush at the end of the garden. God gives us so many gifts, so many opportunities to enjoy life. And he gives us a small number of prohibitions, things that we ought not to do because he wants to protect us. Anyway, Eve won that round. She gave the right response. But uh, the serpent comes straight back at her. And he says, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent casts doubt on what God has said. Kind of like, well, maybe God can't be trusted. Maybe he's just trying to hold you back. You see, Adam and Eve already know what is good and evil. What the tree represents is the opportunity to decide what is good and evil for themselves. But to take that path means rejecting God's rule and authority. To eat the fruit is to say, God, we don't want you or need you to rule in our lives. We don't need you to tell us what we can and can't do. We can decide what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. Thank you very much. Does that sound familiar? Don't nations and cultures still do that? Don't we still do that? We come up with a plan for our lives. We think we know best. We uh, try to push God uh, out of the picture or at least push him to the margins. That might not be a conscious decision. But if we're not actively seeking God's guidance and God's will for our lives, then we just end up following our own whims and desires. Sadly, Eve took the uh, bait. She ate the fruit. And I've heard people joke, oh, typical, it was all the woman's fault. Uh, But it wasn't all the woman's fault because Adam uh, was right there with her and he did nothing. He did nothing. We need to understand that there are sins of commission. These are things that we do that are wrong. But there are also sins of omission, right things that we fail to do. Eve is guilty for what she did. She ate the fruit. Adam is guilty for what he failed to do. He failed to step in and prevent this tragedy. And then, of course, he ate the fruit himself. Adam and Eve ate the fruit because they thought they could be like God. They thought they could be like God. The sad irony is they were made in God's image. They already were like God. By rebelling against God, they hugely reduced and impaired their image-bearing potential. Every human being is made in the image of God. But since that moment, that image has been broken and distorted in all of us. Sin is like a hereditary disease that has infected the entire human race. Not only are we sinful, but it encroaches, sin encroaches on every aspect of our being. Our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our desires, even our capacity to love. 
Uh, our culture's uh, response to sin is to deny or trivialize it. Uh, people say, I am who I am, I can't change. Others say, well, if you're saying that such and such a behavior is sinful, then you're saying there's something wrong with me because that's just who I am. And I was, would respond by saying, yes, there is something wrong with you, but no, it's not just you, there's something wrong with all of us. It's called sin. And sin manifests itself in different ways in all of our lives. So Adam and Eve asserted their independence from God and things immediately began to unravel. We see this downward spiral from that moment. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Their nakedness represents not just their physical nakedness, but in a sense their moral, emotional, and spiritual nakedness. They no longer feel comfortable revealing everything about themselves to the other. They don't want their thoughts, their feelings, or their motives to be seen. Their intimate knowledge of each other is replaced by distrust and a desire to conceal who they really are. Their sin has marred their relationship with one another, just as sin mars all of our relationships. And next we hear that they hid from God. For the first time, they are actually afraid of God because they don't want God to see their nakedness. In other words, they don't want God to see what's, going, what's really going on in their hearts. Well, good luck with that because God sees everything. As it says in Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Lord sees what's going on, and yet we still try to hide from him. We all do it. The hardest time to pray, the hardest time to connect with God is right after some kind of moral failing. If we've lost our temper, or given way to lust, or told a lie, or got drunk, or whatever it is that we struggle with. When we know that we've disobeyed God, the last thing we want to do is come into God's presence. Like Adam and Eve... We hide from God. And God wants to get alongside us. But often we avoid God because we're not ready to bring our sin out into the light and to deal with it. And that is, in fact, what keeps many people away from God permanently. They don't want to expose their sin to the light. They don't want it to be seen. They don't want it to be dealt with. Not even by God. So Adam and Eve's relationship with one another and with God, was spoiled. And, and we see that, uh, this again when God questions them. There's no remorse, no contrition, no repentance. It's just a load of finger-pointing. Adam blames Eve. In fact, worse than that, he blames God. He says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. In other words, it's your fault, God. You shouldn't have brought this woman into my life. She's led me astray. And then, of course, uh, Eve tries to blame the serpent. They simply do not want to take responsibility for their sin. Again, it sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Human nature hasn't changed since the dawn of time. So now God tells them about the consequences of usurping his rule. The serpent is cursed. It's going to crawl on its belly. And there will be enmity between 
the woman and the serpent and their offspring. It's a very clear example of the fractured relationship between human beings and the rest of the animate world. So we see that uh, the relationship between human beings and the rest of God's creatures has been spoiled. And you might have heard a translation, and it's perfectly legitimate, where we, we, we see the serpent as Satan who, who, who bites the heel of, of Christ, who ultimately crushes his head. I don't think it's wrong to interpret these verses in that way. But I think the author's original intention, even though it can be read in other ways, legitimate ways, the author's original intention is to show that this relationship between human beings and the rest of uh, God's creatures has been spoiled. And then the woman is told that childbearing will become painful. And the King James Version actually uses the word sorrow. And uh, this might be more aligned to the original meaning because the book of Genesis is full of stories of women who experience sorrow in relation to their unique vocation as mothers. We're familiar with the stories of Sarah, Hagar, Rebecca and Rachel, all faced heartbreaking situations. So that word sorrow uh, might be even better translation than pain, as in physical pain. Uh, next comes uh, what I regard as one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. It says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, our culture has a lot to say about male domination, the patriarchy. We're all familiar with the feminist movement. Uh, we're also familiar with the oppressive conditions that are experienced by women in places like Afghanistan. It's interesting to see here in Genesis that male domination, patriarchy, is not part of God's design for creation. We clearly see that it comes into the equation as a result of human sin and rebellion against God. Uh, next, we see that even the ground is cursed. Uh, it will no longer yield its crop so easily. The, the, the man will have to engage in back-breaking work just to eke out a living. Work itself isn't the result of sin, so don't go and quit your job. We see in Genesis 2 that Adam and Eve had work to do in the Garden of Eden. God gave them that work to do, didn't he? To tend it and to care for it and to look after it. So they had work to do, but the nature of the work has changed. It's, uh, it's now much harder and more unpleasant as a result of sin. So the upshot of all of this is that Adam and Eve's rebellion against God has knocked the whole of creation out of kilter. It spoiled the way that we relate to God. It spoiled the way that we relate to one another. And it's even spoiled the way that we interact with the natural world, with creation itself. But worst of all, it led to Adam and Eve being banished from the Garden of Eden. And this means they no longer have access to the tree of life. This means they'll die. Sin and death go hand in hand. And some might say, well, that seems way too harsh to cut them off from the, the tree of life. Well, God provides the tree of life because God is the giver of life. By rejecting God, they have rejected life. That is the choice they have made, and actually that is the choice that is still uh, open to all human beings. If we reject God, 
we reject life, more specifically eternal life, but also fullness of life in the here and now. And the Bible could have ended there. Could have ended there, but it doesn't. Because God is determined to, to put right this uh, broken creation and to mend the broken relationship that exists um, between humanity and himself. And we see clear signs of God's grace in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God knew what they had done. And yet when they hid from him, it was God who went in search of them. And we, 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 uh, you know, we see this throughout the Bible, that God comes in search of us. That a loving God searches out the lost and the broken, and even those who are hiding from him. And then in verse 21, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. So this is the first instance in the Bible of God meeting human beings where they're at. God making allowance for their sin and their pride and their foolishness and their rebellion and caring for them and loving them all the same. We're going to see a lot more of that as God's story unfolds. Genesis 3 is essential to understanding the world we live in and to understanding ourselves. It explains why the world is in such a mess. Human beings have rebelled against their creator. And it explains why we have this this inner turmoil. We all experience this. We know the kind of person that we want to be, but we can't quite achieve it. We can't quite be the person we'd like to be. And that's because we're made in God's image. We still bear that image. We have tremendous potential, but we're also broken and sinful. And when we understand this, we see that humanity's attempts to fix the world's problems are woefully inadequate. The root cause of the world's problems, up to and including death itself, is a wholesale rejection of our creator. Humanity has collectively said, God, we don't want you, and we don't need you to rule in our lives. But there is hope, because we're only in Genesis 3, a few pages into the Bible, and the rest of the Bible is all about God's plan to renew and restore the whole of creation. I don't think I need to tell you that Jesus is the solution, ultimately. He has overcome sin and death on our behalf, so that we can be restored to a right relationship with God. Because of Jesus, that putting right of creation has already started. And it can continue in our own lives and in the life of this church and this community. And when Jesus returns, God's kingdom will be fully established forever. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next two weeks as we continue to explore God's story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, Genesis 3 makes pretty bleak reading. But there's nothing surprising in there. We see the problems in the world. We see the, the sin in our own hearts. And we just thank you that you have provided a solution, a way out of all this. 
in your son, Jesus Christ, and we uh, put our complete faith and trust in him and whatever's going on in the world around us, we know that nothing can prevent your plan to renew and restore creation from being fulfilled. And so we love you and we trust you and we pray that you continue to work in our hearts and our minds and our community so that we can be all that you called us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.